Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. The Australian Open preview edition of KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, joined by the team of seven-time Grand Slam champion, three-time Australian Open champion and former world number one, Mats Vlander, as well as two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. And boys, it's it's 2021, thank goodness. We've already had our debut show, and let's just start with this. Now, last year at this time, going into the Australian Open, we really didn't know what was ahead of us for the year. The only thing we really knew, Matt's, was that the country of Australia was on fire and not in a good way. So there's a whole set of problems that went with having to worry about can these players breathe, what kind of smoke inhalation potential was there with these raging fires that were going on. Now we've got a very different set of circumstances that are based around COVID and the quarantine issues. Talk about your view of what you see going on down with this tournament. Oh, I mean, it's obviously a, a horrible situation. Um, the circumstances are probably worse than they were at the French Open and at the U.S. Open for the players uh, in many ways uh, because they've been in, in, in sort of isolation. And the, yes, some players have played some tournaments, but Ash Barty, she hasn't played a tournament in, in, in six months. Uh, and she goes in as one of the favorites. She's allowed to practice, for example. She's not in a bubble because she's been in Australia. Uh, and then you have that other situation where the top players went to Adelaide and um, Novak and Rafa and Serena, and uh, and people are talking about it being very unfair. The other players are saying it's very unfair. Bottom line is that when we went into the Australian Open last year, uh, and the fact that we were able to play through the the smoke and all that, I mean, I was expecting 2020 to be a massive year uh, with with Roger Federer in it, hopefully Rafa Nadal, Novak, who was going to have the most majors at the end of the year and who's going to break through. And yes, we missed Wimbledon, but it's just been such an anticlimactic situation. But I do think that um, just like at the French Open and the US Open, the best players somehow, uh, whether it's unfair or, or not, they, they're going to pull through because they hate losing more than other people. And I think that's what it boils down to. I mean, there is rumors that they might allow as, as many as 50% of the spectators to come in. So that would be unbelievable. But um, I think that, uh, uh, that there's a small chance of that happening. But yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, is it good for somebody like Serena? Maybe, because this is a mental situation to me. No one's going to be perfect physically, but mentally you can be perfect, even though you're not prepared to 100%. So very interesting. Um, I'm in London at the moment. I'm going to work for Eurosport in in a studio here, uh, and I'm going to be following all day, every day. And um, it's uh, kind of uh, back back to work for me, and, and I absolutely love the Australian Open, so it should be a great tournament. Well, he's going to be howling at the moon, uh, Johnny, because Mass is going to have to get up at midnight London time to call these matches. Now, you and I spoke uh, in advance of our recording today, and we talked about whether or not Rafael Nadal would break through and win his 21st major and break Rogers' record and break that tie at 20, or would Novak Djokovic break through and win his, what would it be now, nine or maybe even 10 Australian Opens? You know, Matt makes the comment, is this a, a better situation for Serena? I'll ask you, is it a better situation for Novak and Rafa? Because let's face it, these guys are the wealthy, successful veterans on tour. Do you feel like they're going to have more access to more advantages on staying sharp than some of these lower ranked players? Yeah, I think they will, Andy. I think uh, Novak and, and, and Rafa have, you know, the experience and, and they have all the time on the court playing the, the long five set matches. And, and I just think experience will prevail. I think this new crop of guys, while they're definitely knocking on the door and they can beat those guys, 
they haven't been in that situation nearly like Rafa and Novak. And so that's going to carry them a lot. They are definitely the two favorites in my book. So, Matts, we're about to have a Super Bowl, which is going to put the veteran Tom Brady versus the the young upstart. I mean, he's already he's already had a career at a very young age that that many people would just die to have, which is Patrick Mahomes. Is it possible that we're about to enter a year on the professional men's tennis tour where we're going to have several finals that are reminiscent of this Brady Mahomes matchup where you've got the veteran, be it Federer, be it Rafa, be it Novak versus the younger phenom, be it Dominic Team, uh, you know, or, or some of the other youngsters, the TC Posses and the Kyrios, those type of guys. Could we see more of that this year in your opinion? Yeah, I do think so. Um, I I'm completely agree with Johnny here that I think the two favorites are Novak and, uh, and Rafa. Uh, if, but they can get beaten along the way, and they can get beaten by more players these days because these guys, Stefanos Tsitsipas and, and Dominic Team, I'm not putting him in that same category, but they have big games. And even Sasha Zverev, yes, he did choke uh, at the Open after a while, but the first two sets were just incredible. So I think they have that level that uh, the Marin Cilic and Kane Shikori and Milo Raonic did not have. Uh, once in a while they did, but I think Tsitsipas, they have that level. They believe they have it. Uh, Nick Curious even, uh, you can throw in there, like you said. So, yes, I do believe that the upsets are there, but when it comes down to it in the end, um, you got to beat these guys. They hate losing more than the rest of the field, and I think that's what it boils down to. And with not, not perfect preparation, I think that there's a very, a very small chance that we'll have a, a, a new winner, so to speak. I think Dominic Team. I, I, I really put him in the same group as Rafa and Novak, I have to say, because of what happened um, at the Open winning there. And, of course, he should have won the Australian Open last year. Remember that great five-setter against Novak Djokovic? He beat Rafa Nadal uh, in the quarterfinals. So, I mean, he's, he's playing unbelievable, and uh, he seems to have – have uh, um, somehow um, taken this this COVID year in stride. I, I, it hasn't seemed to affect him that much. Um, but the young guys have bigger games these days. Uh, you can see that not on Novak necessarily, but sometimes Rafa looks a little bit perplexed um, in, in on court and in regular tournaments. Like, holy smokes, Yannick Sinner did it to Rafa at the French Open. Yeah, granted, only for a set. Uh, but he did it, and you could see that Rafa is like, wow, these guys are hitting the ball so hard that he has to start serving and volleying. So I think we'll see more of that from Novak and Rafa, a little more variation, where two guys that, that didn't have any variation for a while, they have it now because they have to have it. Johnny, I think what we might need to do with the show is start a drinking game, and every time Matt mentions the name Yannick Center, you have to take a shot. So that you know <laughs> you're going to at least take a shot or two every show that we do. But I think – I think it's a great point to continue to bring his name up because with what we saw from him, particularly at the end of last year, he does look like a guy that if you're going to mention a crop of players that are going to break through, Sinner's name has to be mentioned among them. Now, let's go back to your tournament, Johnny, 2019, ranked number 57 in the world. This guy breaks through and wins it and ends the year eight in the world, and that's Matteo Berrettini. I mean, is it safe to say that because of what little we know about what these players have been doing, that rarely will we go into a major championship that's more wide open than what this would appear to be outside of what you guys just mentioned, Djokovic and, and, and Nadal holding most of the cards just based on experience. Probably, yeah. I mean, there, there are so many great players. Um, you know, Berrettini is, is an awesome player. He, his results have been a little mixed since, uh, you know, he had that great run, but but he's still, you know, hovering in, in around the top 10 and, and he's got a huge game. He could do well at any time. It's really interesting how deep this, this game is now and, and how many guys could come out of nowhere. I mean, look at it, Sandgren. I mean, here's a guy 50, 60 in the world, has success at the Australian and was a couple points from, or, you know, had seven match points to get to the, the semifinal. Yeah. The guy that I'm kind of interested to see how he's going to play is Kyrgios, Nick Kyrgios. And the reason is, is because this guy has had a long break from tennis and having all that time off. I wonder if he has a really fresh mind and can really, you know, string some, some good matches together. And maybe, maybe the, the break was, was great for him. I think there's a good chance it could be. Um, obviously he hasn't had the competitive matches, but 
it'll be really interesting to see how how Nick Kyrgios plays and how he does. He he could be a threat for sure. It's interesting to me to to sort of trying to figure out who does it favor to not play tennis. Is it is it the 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 pusher, the grinder who doesn't make mistakes because he brings his level uh, pretty close to 100% every time or at least at 90? Or is it Nick Curious who, who, you know, has to be sharp in many ways because of the way he plays, but then he's got that huge serve. I mean, who does this favor? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, you know, is it the person that keeps the ball in play? How does Serena, what, what happens to Serena Williams when she doesn't, when she doesn't play at all and she doesn't get to practice as much, but, or maybe has, has she? So um, again, it's very interesting to me that some players have actually chosen to hit tennis balls in their room against a, a mattress up against the wall. And some people are playing just against, against the wall, volleying back and forth, because I think physically they're obviously uh, suffering. They're not going to be as strong physically. Uh, that's for sure. But mentally, to sit in your room and quarantine and, and not play as much tennis as you normally do, it's tough mentally to be focused for three, four, five hours for a man suddenly when you haven't done that. You haven't practiced four hours a day for the last six weeks. But in the end, I think it has to do with the big servers. I think they, they, that's the stroke they do not lose, it seems. The John Isners, um, Nick Curios. They serve well all the time. And if you're not sharp as a returner, you're going to struggle, I think. So I think upsets are in the cards on, on both women and the men's side. But in, in the end, I wonder if this is a good thing for Serena because she can come out there and she can play her opponent and she can intimidate them a little bit with power and the way she behaves uh, on the court, uh, being focused and all that. So, uh, it, it, I mean, it's really hard to pick. Well, I would I would like to push back ever so slightly on what you just said about the big servers being at the advantage. Because when I look back on on past multiple champions of this event, I think Mats Vlander winning three times. I think Andre Agassi winning four times. I think Yvonne Lendl having tremendous success down there. And I I think of obviously the greatest you know Australian Open champion we've ever had, obviously being Novak Djokovic. And I I think that the things that those four players all have in common is tremendous determination, tremendous mental toughness and an ability to win by moving well and hitting more balls back. And I think, I think good movement, you know, travels well throughout the course of time off because that's something that you can work on in a hotel room or, or wherever. But I think, I think that the strong mind and the ability to cover the court and to make a lot of balls makes me think of a Diego Schwartzman right. in a case like this. Like maybe that's a guy that's, that's primed to, to, you know, offer one of those upsets um, or, or a kid like a sinner. If we're, if we're looking for guys that are going to break through, I think in the case of a Nick Kyrgios, maybe the time away has allowed him to grow up in many ways. I saw some quotes recently attributed to him regarding Novak Djokovic. And although they were somewhat critical, they seemed a little bit softer in their stance. They weren't as provocative. They weren't as edgy. So, Johnny, you know, you played down there and it seems like your game is in the same mold of these players that I was just mentioning. Do you think that the, the, the jackrabbit, retriever, get a lot of balls back guy is, is it any kind of an advantage based on the amount of time off or the lack of matches that these guys have had? Yeah, and also, um, you know, the weather conditions make it hot and difficult. You know, you, you, you can't overlook the guys that are from Australia that are in their home slam. One guy that comes to mind that's, that's had a lot of success there is playing great tennis. He just won a title is John Millman. Right. And he plays that, that kind of game that Matt's was talking about. He could definitely have some great success there. Going back to Curios, though, um, you know, I've read a, a lot of stuff that, that, that he's talked about in his quarantine. He's very you know, cautious of the COVID and he wants, you know, great restrictions, but he's also talked about him having, you know, this time off has given him new perspective. So, uh, you know, I think that, that Kyrgios has all the makings to come out and, and really surprise us with some tremendous results. So uh, I would not count that guy out. These guys that, that play in their home slams, whether it be, you know, French people at the French or Americans at, at, in New York, I mean, they have a big advantage. I mean, they feel more comfortable. So you got to look out for some of these Australian guys, even Damon Neuer. I mean, he's a great player. I mean, he could, he could do well. Um, Andy, you also brought up a point about Matt, uh, about Djokovic. 
no one really talks about, and you mentioned it just now, eight Australian Open titles. That's, I mean, it is amazing. And we always think about Rafa and the French, but I mean, he's approaching 10 slams. I mean, he wins a couple more of these things. So he's, he is, feels so comfortable there. It's kind of like Rafa in, in Paris. So or Roger on the grass or Roger on the grass. So he's got to be the favorite. I got, you got to go back to Djokovic, the comfort level there. And, and, and while Rafa can, can definitely win it, it's, it's not, you know, it's, he's not as at home in, in at the Australian open as he would be at some of these other tournaments. So I definitely am, am still sticking with Djokovic uh, to win it. All right. So you're, you make a good point. Rafael Nadal won Australian Open championship to his credit and eight for Novak Djokovic. Okay. When we come back, guys, I want to talk a little bit about the tradition of Australian tennis and the mark that some of the great Australians have left on our game. Sometimes we overlook the, the history and certainly so much of the rich history in our sport is attributable to Australian players. So let's touch on a little bit of that. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Andy Zoden, Matt Vlander, Johnny Levine, don't go away. We'll be right back with more Aussie tennis talk right after this. Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, is an interactive mobile game that you have got to check out. Bracket features celebrities, athletes, and other major influencers discussing their favorite topics in a bracket-style competition where users can win big if they can guess the celebrities' picks. Another cool component is that Bracket features all of the celebrities, athletes, and influencers discussing their favorite charities on every show. So go to Bracket.com. Remember, it's B-R-A-C-K-I-T.com, where everybody wins. Bracket.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We're talking Aussie tennis as the Australian Open commences as of February 8th. Guys, we we, we brought up a statistic while we were off air, and uh, Matt Vlander, of course, brought it up because it included his playing resume, which was that he and Rafael Nadal are the only two players to win major championships on all three surfaces at least twice, which, Johnny, is you and I, we tease Matt's a lot, but we, we both know what an absolute god the guy is. But beyond that, how about this for Australian tennis history? Roy Emerson, the great MO, the only player in the history of the sport to win singles and doubles majors twice, each, each major twice, to win the career Grand Slam in singles and doubles at least two times. Talk about your perception of the great Roy Emerson and his mark on the sport of tennis. Well, for so many years, Roy Emerson held the most amount of slams at 12 in singles. And, you know, when Sampras passed him, obviously, you know, Roy Emerson was there and it was it was quite a quite a thing to break that record. But Roy Emerson is is a guy that is renowned in the tennis world. And obviously, you know, coming from Australia, he's got a band of guys there that that uh, he's super close with and, and is a super popular guy. He's done a lot of tennis coaching after his career in, in the States. And um, I actually grew up uh, playing juniors in college tennis and some pros with, with his late son, Anthony Emerson. It was very sad that he passed away in 2016. I know they played some father-son and they had a very close relationship. So that was a super, super sad situation but Roy Emerson is is just a, an absolute legend in, in in tennis well and I think Johnny he represents an era of Australian tennis where you know we, we talk about winning the two slams in uh, in both singles and doubles wasn't really that unusual for the Australian players of that day and age and and I'll and I'll defer to Matt's on this but it's like you had Labor winning at a high level in both singles and doubles. John Newcomb teamed with Tony Roach to win uh, lots of singles and double slams. So those players in that era were really very well-rounded, and I think they used a similar skill set because that was when you could win a, at a high level with a serving volley game. So that obviously translated well to to singles and doubles, and now those skill sets seem to be sort of separated. And we're going to talk to Jeff Kotsia, who is – 
uh, a former great doubles player in his own right and the coach of the number one team in the world, um, Juan Sebastian Cabal and and uh, Robert Farah. But before we get to that, Matt, talk about this this tradition of of Aussie tennis and how versatile that era of players were that was led by Roy Emerson and and, and Rod Laver and John Newcomb. Yeah, I mean, incredible. I mean, I, and I think it starts with Harry Hopman. He he really was the one that pushed the the Aussies. Uh, sort of to, to the maximum uh, level in terms of practicing. I mean, these guys practiced way more than they do today in tennis, on the tennis court. They practiced more than we did too uh, because I think physical uh, training off the court wasn't uh, known back then. But I mean, these, they, they, they were great players, Rod Laver, Roy Emerson, and Ken Rosa, but they were physical animals. I, and I think you just mentioned that they, they sort of survived in serve and volley but they were somehow more well-rounded to even play on clay than, let's say, some of the Americans that, that were big-time serving volleys, Stan Smith, uh, the, the late Arthur Ashe. They couldn't really play on the clay court. They couldn't play on slower courts. But, but the Aussies, they figured out how to serve and volley, play at Wimbledon, how to win the French Open by staying back, keeping the ball in place. So I think that they were um, more complete than than um, the, that generation in general. So we did that. I did that. I went there in 1980, 1981, and we spent six weeks on grass training like the Labors and the Emerson. And we were on court for six, seven, eight hours a day in Perth. So I think that they, they left a mark on the sport that, that somebody like Roger Federer, that's why he honors Rod Labor in the Labor Cup. You know what, Andy and Johnny, I go to the Australian Open every year. I've been going for the last, geez, since 1980, 81 and every Saturday, the second Saturday, they have a lunch at one of the hotels and they honor a, a great Aussie. And they honored Mal Anderson, I believe it was last uh, in, in 2019. Um, in, sorry, 2020. I think it was Mal Anderson. Everyone is there. Rod Laver is there. Roy Emerson is there. Ken Rosewall is there. Uh, Fred Stoller was there. I mean, I, I was asked to come up on stage at one. I can't remember who they honored. I was choking because you look at Rod Laver is sitting there, Ken Roseville, Rod, and they're all sitting at the same table and they're all laughing and they're having a few beers. And I mean, the, the, the camaraderie as well, just amazing. Well, and then Johnny skiing in the wake, if you will, of that golden age of Australian tennis, then along comes maybe the second best doubles team of all time, the Woodies. And then you throw in the Patrick Rafters, the Leighton Hewitts, and I suppose you could even throw Mark Philippoussis in with that bunch because of you know having made a handful of Slam finals. Certainly, outside of the Woodies, you know those guys didn't necessarily win at the same clip that this prior generation had done so. But it seems like they certainly did those guys proud. They went out there. All five of those guys that I just mentioned went out there like proud Australian warriors and really sort of felt. The, the, the duty, if you will, to uphold the tradition of great Australian tennis. The Woodies had tremendous, you know, they did great on tour and they were really one of the first teams. I mean, and you had Flack and Seguso, but, but the Woodies really were the start of this, uh, this, this doubles phenomenon where you had double specialists. I mean, they, they both were very solid singles players, but the doubles is where they took off. And, and um, it seemed to me that they really, you know, put a high mark on, on professionalizing doubles and, and they were, were great for the game and they were just great people. And so, and I think they're still very involved in tennis and, and um, people, people still look up to them. When you talk about a Patrick Rafter, Matt, I remember several shows ago that you made the comment about Patrick Rafter as a servant volleyer. And the word that really struck a chord with me, particularly after I went back and watched some of his, old matches, the the Wimbledon final against Goran and some of the other matches, he was really clever with his serve and volley game. And we don't see enough of that in today's game. And really, Patrick Rafter, for having won two majors, both in the U.S. Open and a couple of Wimbledon finals, he really was one of the more enjoyable players to watch play tennis, was he not? Oh, absolutely. And I think he took after Pat Cash, another great Australian. Right. Who, who, yeah. Whose career was, was shortened. He had a lot of injuries. He won Wimbledon in 1987. He lost a couple of Australian Open finals, one to Edberg, one to me, two years in a row on grass and then on hard courts the following year. Um, he was an unbelievable player. But the same thing, these guys, they, they, they played smart serve and volley. And of course, Stefan Edberg uh, comes to mind for me. They weren't, they weren't hitting, hitting any aces. Patrick Rafter would hit an ace because you anticipated that he was going to kick it, but he sliced it. But it wasn't a serve like Pete Sampras or Goran Ivanisevic, not even close. 
Uh, but they knew where to serve at the certain point. They knew to serve to the body, kick it up high, slice it out. And they were hoping, expecting a return at their feet. And they dealt with half volleys and low volleys. And Patrick Rafter, I mean, he's nearly like the last one uh, that was a real true servant volleyer who, uh, who had tremendous success. I can't think of anybody else, but uh, again, it, it, it goes back to, to those Aussies. They, I think they have so much respect. Davis Cup, look at Davis Cup. The people that are most disappointed with the new format in Davis Cup is Australia. Leighton Hewitt is on fire about that whole thing that they can't play at home. So I think that they just love their tennis uh, in, in a different way from, from most other countries. Well, I want to stick with you, Matt, for a quick second, and I promise I'll get back to you, Johnny. But you made the comment that Leighton Hewitt is, you use the term, they're on fire about this Davis Cup thing. Well, another issue that Australian tennis and maybe tennis throughout the world is sort of on fire about, for better or for worse, is the situation with Margaret Court. And obviously, here's one of the, the great female, if not just great tennis players of all time. She's the one that that Serena continues to chase down with, with, with 24 major championships. And she has been the subject of a lot of controversy for her uh, social stances, if you will. And she says, not only have I not been invited to the Australian open this year, but even if I were, I wouldn't go to the Australian open this year. She has Margaret court arena down there. Do you feel Matt's that she's gotten a bad rap do you feel this is deserved or are you sort of not sure it's maybe even a place you want to comment? Oh, I want to comment, Andy. No, okay. I, I actually think it's deserved. I mean, I've seen some of the, the comments that she made uh, publicly in newspapers um, and, um, and it's, it's just not, not good. It's not cool. I think the big question that I am convinced it's not cool, what she's saying. I, I, I'm not saying she's not a good person. She's a, unbelievable tennis player but but she she is uh very old-fashioned in her in her ways uh in her thinking for sure now the question is do they keep the the court named margaret court arena uh or do they take this the statue of general lee down so to speak because it's the same thing it's history and she did so much for australian tennis and for australia as a country and put the the uh, sports on uh sports in australia on the world global map by what she did uh she did lead um the uh, wta early on she she tried to sort of be hanging there with billie jean king in terms of playing bobby riggs and uh, I mean, she did a lot for tennis, so I don't think that it's right to take the name uh, away from the court. But I think you can still disagree with her her stance when it comes to some social issues. Johnny, let me ask you this, because with regard to that very issue, Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe made a bit of a spectacle of themselves. I believe it was last year when they walked onto the court at, I believe, Margaret Court Arena with some big sign that I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it was it was pretty anti-Margaret Court. Did you feel that that was maybe a situation where they kind of got out of their lane a little bit, if you will, or do you think that, uh, that Mac and Martina have every right to go down there and, and make that kind of a statement? particularly considering they're not even Australian players. Does that in any way affect whether or not they should be able to do that? That's a tough one. Um, you know, you kind of think about how you would handle it as your own person, and uh, I wouldn't do it. Um, so so I kind of think that maybe it was they were out of their lane, in my opinion. But, um, you know, I just think there's other things to focus on. and So no comment? So... Um, <laughs> So I, I, I like I like to I like to refer to Matt's. How do you feel, Andy? Andy, let's put you on the spot, Andy. Where, where, where do you where do you? Stand? I thought I was the one asking the tough <laughs> questions. All right, uh, you know when I saw that, I thought to myself, I can see where Martina's coming from in light of the fact that she is the one that feels directly transgressed upon, if you will. So therefore, I could see her really feeling like it's up to her to sort of lead that charge. In, in the case of McEnroe, I, I guess that was more a matter of him coming out in support of Martina and, and, the, and, the, and the players and the people around the world that are offended or should be offended by that. But at times, I almost feel like John has a tendency to be a little maybe too involved in too many areas of the sport and maybe – 
Yeah, just a little, you know, uh, and, and I mean, I love him as a commentator and uh, loved him as a player. But, yeah, he has a tendency to if there's uh, something controversial to connect himself to, uh, he usually doesn't hesitate. So I was I was a little put off by it. I thought it was a bit extreme to go to that extent and do it. I was also very offended one night and this is separate, but. I was watching Nick Kyrgios play a match against Grigor Dimitrov, which they just replayed this week. Um, and Grigor ended up beating Nick Kyrgios on Rod Laver Arena. And, and Rod was sitting about two rows behind the court. And Nick, in out of anger, kept spitting on the tennis court right in front of Rod Laver. And I just feel like there's a level of respect that you have for a person when you are on the court that is named after them. Not to say that Martina and John McEnroe should not have a, a, a retort to the stance that Margaret Court has taken, but maybe there's a time and a place, and I'm not 100% sure I agreed with that move. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, obviously, John, um, he's a good friend of mine these days. He does some work for Eurosport as well. We played uh, so many big matches um, and uh, gotten, gotten to be really close with him. He's a great guy. He's got a huge heart, um, he, which in the end, that's why he cares. He cares so much that that's why he explodes on the Senate court at Wimbledon and, and all these tantrums all over the world. And, and, uh, and if you get to know him, you realize that it's just because he's a very, very emotional, not just tennis player, but, but a person, but a, a good emotional. He's very fair. Um, he was always very fair on a tennis court. He never tried uh, to intimidate his opponent or anything. Uh, it, it seemed to people, but he never did. Um, he has really bad eyesight i have to say at times um when it comes to line okay. i think he you know he's put himself in that situation and maybe he has he has he has to kind of respond to something like that because because that's his image and, and and that's what people expect a little bit and and we we like it you know we like nick curious when he's he's no, not spitting on the court. That's horrendous behavior. But, uh, you know, the John McEnroe's uh, people listen when he says something. And I think he's he should he have done it. I'm not sure. But but he certainly has a, a right to freedom of speech. But I, I agree. It's a it's a really tough call. So no more hard questions, Andy. OK, got it. I'll give you guys an easy one, because I think this one goes without saying it. I think on the other end of the spectrum in terms of uh, popularity and doing things the right way and presenting herself in, in an incredibly um, likable way and an appealing way is Yvonne Gulagong. And the question that I have for you guys is with everything that she has meant to Australian open tennis. And I'll start with you, Johnny. Why does she not have a court named after her at Melbourne park? God, that's a great question. I mean, she's, well, I think she's won four Australian Open singles titles and was the darling of women's tennis, um, definitely in Australia. And what a classy lady. I'd love to see something, you know, named in her honor. But she's, she's you know, aside from Margaret Court, has to be number two all-time greats from Australia. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if some there was an honor down the line for her. I, I would love to see that. She's almost like, to Australian tennis, what Chrissy Everett was to American tennis at that same period of time. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely. She won a Wimbledon as well. Um, I'm not sure if she won yeah. another major, but but I mean, when you watch everyone Gulagong, who who Ash Barty, Ash Barty, we haven't talked about her. She she right. is such a class act on court. She knows how to do everything. Uh, she plays her opponent every time. She doesn't get carried away. She hits that nice little slice back, and she comes to the net. She's got that complete game that that uh, Yvonne Gulagong had, and that most Australians have had over the years. Uh, even Leighton Hewitt, who is a great, obviously, baseliner more than anything, but he's a great doubles player, and he volleys unbelievably well. So I think uh, uh, Ash Barty has looked up, and I know this for a fact. He looked up to Yvonne Gulagong uh, as much or more than Margaret Court, because I think Margaret Court is sort of out of reach for for these uh, younger the younger generation and especially ash barty because they got like six show courts at, at melbourne park these days and it's an unbelievable um stadium uh and grounds that it, it, i mean it's really second to none i have to say it's not as big as arthur ash rod labor arena but uh, the facility is incredible so i'm sure down the line they're looking at naming uh courts after uh, great aussie players instead of uh, calling them court six and court seven and, and show court two Certainly Gulagong would be next on the list. One another Australian female that 
probably deserves mention just based on if if nothing else, one beatdown that she put on Serena Williams in the finals of the U.S. Open, and that would be Sam Stoser. And she certainly had uh, a great run both as a singles and a doubles player, which seems to be. Uh, what these Australians are known for. Guys, you know, like you were saying, Matt, this is the most fun that you've had in a while. Talking Australian tennis is really, it just it just brings back so many great memories because I think no matter how we learned how to play and who coached us, there there is some sort of, of Australian influence on everything that all three of us have learned. And certainly, Matt, you put it to better use uh, than, than myself. And Johnny, you did too. Um, but I just tried to do whatever I could, you know, coming into the net a little bit. Can, can I insert something there, Andy? Always, can I, always. I can put Austra- so I, let me put the Australian players there. They're, they're in one category. They're at one, a certain level. The, the other player that comes to mind that players respect more and imitated more and taken more from is this Swede, Bjorn Borg. I mean, Bjorn Borg played such a simple game of tennis and he behaved so well that he met, so much for tennis, just like the great Aussies. Now, if you compare that to Jimmy Connors or John McEnroe, who they were both unbelievable great players, but there are no players out there that play like McEnroe and Connors, but there are a lot of players even today that play similar to Bjorn Borg. So, I mean, he he's there with me, with the Australians. They did their thing. Bjorn Borg was the next guy. And, I mean, the, the way that he played and behaved on court, that's still... Uh, is sort of what you're trying to accomplish on a tennis court. Make no mistake. Don't show any emotions. Move your feet and 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 uh, and win as much as you can with not taking any risks. That's Bjorn Borg. That's Novak Djokovic. That's Rafa Nadal. Well, Johnny, I got to give Matt a lot of credit for being able to morph a conversation about the greats in Australian tennis into being all about Swedish tennis. But but okay, I mean it's you know he's 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 able to do that having won three Australian Opens himself. You've been listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have been talking about Australian tennis, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more, and we're going to be joined by Jeff Kotsia, who is the coach of the number one doubles team in the world of the Colombians, Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah. So we'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, Lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This is our Australian Open preview show. Uh, and as promised, we are joined by a great doubles player on the tour in his own right, uh, winning six titles, getting to number 12 in the world in 2008. And now he's the coach of, as we mentioned before, the number one doubles team in the world, the Colombians, Farah and Cabal. And he is Jeff Kutsia. Jeff, so nice to have you. You're in Australia, getting ready for everything. How are you doing? Yes, hi Andy. Uh, thanks uh, for for having me. It's been good. Uh, all I can say, the room is getting a little bit smaller. 
but uh, we do get out a little bit, so it makes a huge difference. I just feel sorry for the ones that can't get out, uh, which makes it tough. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting uh, week or straight and open this year with all that's been happening. But uh, look, we have our health. Uh, we're staying safe. They're trying whatever. So that's probably the main thing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, Jeff, was because there has been a little bit of controversy over the disparity in the COVID quarantine protocols in Melbourne versus what's going on in Adelaide. Uh, Rafael Nadal has come out and made some comments. Novak Djokovic has asked for an easing of those restrictions. You're there in the midst of it, sort of experiencing all this. How, how much controversy is swirling around as a result of it? Yeah, that's a lot, and yeah, and I think it's uh, it also varies from uh, from province or state, whatever you want to call it. it it's very different from here to Mount, uh, Adelaide, for example. Here they haven't had uh, cases for the last I don't know how many weeks, so it, it kind of and that was basically one of the reasons we could have it. You know, it's got nothing to do really with tennis Australia. It's all to do with the government, and that's the only way we can have it. And it it did say that if one person gets uh, positive and stuff, the whole plane will have to quarantine. So yes, it's frustrated because now you're flying all the way here. It's never happened before. We even had chartered flights. I mean, they really tried their best. And that was the only way that the, the, the tournament could even go on. Just remember, we even three weeks delayed because of all this, because there was one or two cases uh, in December. So the government said uh, no one is allowed until in, in January. So, yes, it, it, it's been very difficult. It's frustrated uh, uh, for the tennis players and especially for pro athletes. So you can just imagine because now you're sort of going out, out of your comfort zone. But we are outside our comfort zones with the world we live in today. So we just have to adapt and make the most of it. I would suspect, Jeff, that it's one set of problems and one set of circumstances as a coach dealing with a singles player. Now you're in a situation where you're not only the coach of a doubles team, you happen to be the coach of the number one doubles team in the world. And the Australian Open is one of two majors that these guys have yet to win. As we recall back, we know that your boys won both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 2019 and really kind of ascended to the top of the game, maybe uh, sort of taking the place of the Bryan brothers. And we'll talk a little bit about them as well. But how much more complicated does it get having to look out for two guys versus just one player? Are there times where one guy has to quarantine and the other guy doesn't, can they both go out and practice at the same time? I mean, obviously it would, it would certainly help your cause if they could, or do you find any little bumps in the road with regard to the COVID issues in coaching a doubles team under these circumstances? No, I, we, we are allowed to go out together. And if the one guy can't practice, he'll just then go with the physio. We're lucky enough to have a physio with us as well. So he'll then be able to do something while I'm working with the other guy and then be able just to strengthen and uh, the little things we need to be doing. Uh, we're less than a week away to playing our first uh, match. Also, uh, Cabal hasn't played uh, since after French Open because he had COVID actually twice. He was in the hotel room for three weeks in Sardinia. So so it's been tough. And then all, on top of that, when he got home a few weeks later and he just started slowly getting into swing of things, he fell off a, a mountain bike and then hurt oh his uh, middle finger. So he, he's actually just been hitting since the 7th of Jan. His, his finger, middle finger is actually still swollen, but it's already getting better and better every day. And, you know, this first tournament we going to just have it as a practice for him regardless how we do it's just for him to get a match in and then also uh, obviously the aim is to to see what we can do at Australian Open you know the, the goal is obviously to win this one uh, we've had a finals before uh, and I think the boys can really do it you know uh, and then obviously which is one of the best surfaces clay we, we need to get there and get that over the hurdle because the last three uh, we've made semi-final and yet they were the favorites and the best team to uh, probably out there, but just uh, they just didn't play well enough on the on the bigger, bigger points. Now, I mentioned the Bryan brothers a little bit ago, Jeff, and, and they're probably one of the few teams that you competed against. And now your boys have probably competed against them as well. Now that they've left the game and I know everybody's, you know, a little bit bummed for the fact that they did not get to take their sort of 2020 victory lap, which we were all looking forward to them making their, their final stand at each of these tournaments. And it was just terrible timing as far as they were concerned of uh, the year that they had planned to retire was the year that we really didn't see a whole lot of tennis. Now that they're gone from the game, I'm sure everybody in the locker room feels like, 
every tournament is wide open. And they probably felt that way for the last few years anyway, as a lot of players had closed the gap on Bob and Mike. But but now that they're gone, do you feel like the men's doubles tour has a little less of a shine on it, a little bit less luster because of the fact that those guys brought so much attention to the doubles draw? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, first of all, I think, I mean, Bob and Mike, you know, I grew up with them playing juniors against them. I remember playing at uh, Surbiton the week or two weeks junior tournaments before I played Bob for the first time. Uh, played him in singles, played him in a challenger final in um, Palm Springs. I've, I mean, I've known the boys for so long. And uh, it was basically, once they started up, it was actually a nightmare to play them because you have a lefty, you have a righty, and they are such, probably one of the best front runners out there. You know, I've played uh, against your your Eltings and Harrays, and I've played against the Woodbridges, the Payers, the Papadis, all those guys, you know. But, I, I mean, n- not that I'm taking away from those guys, but I just feel like with these guys, it was just the, the type of energy they brought to the game. I mean, they were so unbelievable for the game. You know, I think uh, in America, we're so lucky to have these guys for so long and uh, the way they competed. And, you know, it just shows, you know, yeah, they grew up together, a team that stayed together for so long and know each other in and out. But, uh, I mean, what they've brought for the tennis game, and I mean, oh, yeah, we, we're going to miss them. But in a way, it's also sad. But in a way, it's open right now. You know, anybody can 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 win a Grand Slam. Before, you only had like one or two guys that you really picked out. These potential guys will win. Now it's a lot open. One of the matches that I hearken back on, Jeff, that I saw you play, I happened to be in Houston uh, and watched you play at Westside. I think it was the U.S. Clay Courts, and you and your old buddy Brent Haygarth to pretty good care of Andy Roddick and Jan Michael Gamble, if I remember that right. And it really showed the disparity between two guys with uh, a very specific skill set geared toward doubles versus two guys who are, you know, undoubtedly great tennis players as both of their careers would, would show, but, but they were singles players. And a lot of, a lot of people don't understand, you know, where that line is drawn, which gives doubles players an opportunity or an advantage against singles players like that. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I actually remember that match uh, really well. You know, that's the time I was lucky enough to play with Brent. He was a lot older than me. These are the guys that I was looking up to. Your Brent, your Wayne Ferreras and everybody. Sure. So I was lucky enough to play with him. I, I always say that uh, singles guys, they are so good. But they what they do is they play singles doubles. Right. So they don't play as a team. So that, that's one thing. Once you come together as a team, it makes a huge difference. For me, it feels like there's too many gaps and you see it. If you are a doubles team, you see those gaps and that's where we explore them a lot. You see them that they, they are so good when they, when they hit off the ground, you watch the matches, how they come in to the net. But yet when you hit straight to them, they can miss an easy volley because they're very static. So there's a lot of things. I always t- told my guys, the way I played, I would play a certain way when I played doubles guys, I would play a certain way when I played singles guys and I would stick to that because sometimes they'll beat me, but the majority of the time I'll beat them because I'm sticking with my guns. And that's how I sort of approach the game as, as a player. And that's what I've told them to do. You got to be able to play doubles guys this way and singles guys another way. Our special guest today on the Australian open preview edition of kickserveradio.com part of tennis channel podcast network is South African player and coach Jeff Kutsia. And Jeff, you talk about these these singles player that players that play singles, but Rafael Nadal seems to be maybe an exception to that. We've seen him have great success, particularly playing with Mark Lopez. We've seen him play great doubles at, in Davis Cup. We've seen him play great doubles uh, at Indian Wells as well. What What is the difference there with Nadal that allows him to sort of transfer his single skills to become – I would say a, a better than average doubles player at the least. Yeah, definitely better than average. That's for sure. You know, Olympic medalist as well, a gold medalist there. I think it's just the, the way Rafi is, the way he brings out the best out of you. Every guy that he's played with, they now trying to play better than their level. And that's what Rafa brings to you. He brings that energy. Uh, he's not afraid to take risks where I feel like a lot of the singles guys, when your partner served, they're a little bit static. Rafa reads the game really well. And again, I've played with him against him many, many times. And I know on a big moment that he will go, for example. So sometimes you start picking these things up 
And if it doesn't go, then your mindset is like, you know what? If it doesn't go, I'm going to hit this return so good that at least I'll have a second shot. That is my mindset. Whereas a lot of the guys, they're static. They don't take chances. And the way, because crossing is basically timing. And they don't have the timing, I think, because, sure. but I think the singles guys play, are getting so much better because they have the opportunity now to play a lot more doubles, which is going to be very good for the future. And, uh, but Rafa is just one of those guys that reads the game so well. Same with, uh, with Roger. You know, these guys have the ability to understand the situation they're in at the moment and what the situation presents in a big moment in the doubles. And they're not afraid to take the risks. Right now at the top of the men's game in the singles, you've got Roger at age 39, Rafa at age you know 34, I believe Novak 33. But the same holds true in the doubles. Your boys are both mid-30s, as are a lot of the, the players uh, on the doubles tour. These are guys that are seasoned veterans. Do you think that, uh, that it's a little bit more of an aberration that we've got so many great singles players that are still going good? Obviously, Roger, Rafa, and Novak, they speak for themselves. That's a, that's a generation of players the likes of which we're likely never to see again. But in the doubles, did the Bryans sort of set a standard of playing into your latter years, a la, let's say, Tom Brady in the NFL with what we're seeing from him right now, that a lot of these guys look at an elongated career on the tour on the double side of things? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the singles guys there in, in Roger and Rafa and Djokovic, and the same with the Bryans uh, in the doubles. You always have in sport, in a different sport, somebody sending the trend and then decide, but hang on, if they can do it, we can also do it. So in, in, in this regard, it's the Bryan brothers still competing at a high level and have a top ranking winning big tournaments and stuff. So I think definitely, and that's why I told my guys as well, look, you guys are now, when I started with them, they were actually laughing at me and I said, you're going to play till 38 or 30. And I was like, no way, there's no chance I can play until that. And now they're starting to realize, wow, we actually can do it. Because I, I just told him, look, you got to look at the longevity of it. you got to look at it as a business plan. For the next, like Rob went to USC, I said, now you're done. And when I started with you, you know that you're going to play until 39 if you start taking care of your body. You need to start doing A, your body B you need to start looking long-term. What do you want? You can't just like, okay, by 35, I'm done. I said, no, Rob, where, where are you going to have the opportunity to play at this level and make points and meeting people, make the money you're going to make somewhere else. I said, do it now. But first of all, all those things come together when you have the passion for the game and, uh, and you'll be able to enjoy every moment out there and, and not, Obviously, what, what the Bryans has done also well is you adjust. You know, they've gotten the physio full-time. You've done that. And this is what my guys have done since I've actually met them. They've always had, and they've had a sponsor called Sanitas that's that basically from juniors, which they are very lucky. Not a lot of the guys can afford a physio or something full-time. So we're lucky to have that that can look after their body. And that obviously uh, will help a lot uh, to be able to prolong your career. I mean, Roger was the first guy to, to suddenly playing start playing less than 20 tournaments so that already uh, showed you you know how he was thinking schedule management and words to live by the great jeff kotsia coach of the number one doubles team in the world of juan sebastian cabal and robert farah on behalf of myself the great mats vlander and johnny levine we want to thank you jeff for joining us and being a part of kickserveradio.com uh tennis on air with with all of us and part of tennis channel podcast network and good luck in the aussie open okay thank you guys all the best there